My name is J.W. Oker. I'm an author, and I like to go out and look for weird stuff. I call it oddity. For more than a decade, I've sought out oddities of nature, oddities of art, oddities of culture and history. I believe that within a tank or two of gas, of any point in this country, is some seriously cool oddity, and that we all should go check it out. This is Odd Things I've Seen, the podcast. All right, I have a dirty martini in my hand and a giant Yeti microphone in my face. So that means it must be podcast time. And I'm going to start this podcast with a word. It is a word that I do not use very lightly. And that word is bonkers. And you can test me on this. You can go to oddthingsiveseen.com, go to the right column of the page because I have a web design from 1997. Go to the Google search and type in bonkers and see how many times I use it over the course of visiting thousands of oddities. I'm going to tell you, even though I haven't done this myself, that I haven't used it very often. But for the subject of today's podcast, for the two subjects of today's podcast, it fits absolutely. These oddities are bonkers. A few episodes ago, I interviewed my wife for this podcast to give you kind of another perspective on this whole oddity hunting life that I find myself in and we find ourselves in. And one of the questions I asked her was, what are the, some of the oddities that really stick out to you? Over 10 years of searching for oddities, thousands of oddities, and she mentioned two museums. And I think her picks were dead on. These two museums I think both of us are still kind of coming to terms with what we saw and experienced and what they are. I think we still kind of don't know what they are. So for today's podcast or this week's podcast or this week's this month's podcast, depending on how often I'm getting these out these days, I want to talk about these two museums. One is in St. Louis, Missouri, and the other is in Wisconsin. So I'm going to take this chronologically. We're going to go to the museum that we went to first, the City Museum in St. Louis, Missouri. Now, the City Museum is sort of a children's playground slash interactive exhibition. So you may be thinking, of course, it's bonkers. It's for kids. No, I've been to plenty of kids attractions. I have three of them. So I've been to a lot of stuff that is mainly aimed at kids. And none of it is even close to what we experienced at the City Museum. It's almost an indescribable place. And its name, City Museum, its boring, staid name... I can only assume is a public show of defeat at coming up with an accurate descriptor for what this thing is. I mean, City Museum suggests stayed displays. Ooh, I used stayed twice. That's not good. But City Museum suggests very boring displays, quiet field trips, and champagne receptions. No, that's not what the City Museum is about at all. The City Museum is bonkers. So we pulled into the City Museum parking lot and barely noticed that said parking lot was outlined with giant scaly stone serpents. This is something I would usually not just notice, but completely photograph from every angle. But that's because we were staring at the exterior of the building of the City Museum, an exterior that made absolutely no sense. It's ostensibly a 10-story factory that used to make shoes. Pretty straightforward. However, out front, I could see actual jets and planes stuck in a jumble of metal made up of tunnels and platforms and bridges and slides. It looked like an industrial junkyard tended to by some undiscovered outsider artist. 
It's, and that was just in front of the building. High up on the roof of the building, I could see vague shapes, including what looked like an actual school bus dangling over the edge. And I thought I saw people in it. So we entered. We paid our fee because this is an attraction. This is something that was made for people to experience. And the only direction we were given by the person who took our money and gave us our wristbands was, you should start on the roof. It looks like it's going to rain and we'll close it if it gets too bad. So very practical advice. And she smiled politely when she said it. Although what was clearly lodged between the words of her greeting was, but we'll let it get a little dangerous first. Because obviously being on the roof with all these metal contraptions before an impending storm, that roof should already have been closed. But it wasn't. And she said, actually, go see it now. <laughs> so she was encouraging us to go up there. So up to the roof we went. Me, my wife, and our then four-year-old and our newborn. So we had two of our three kids at the time. One was four years old. One was newborn. And that's who we took up onto the roof for this storm. And... When the doors to the elevator opened, it was opened onto chaos. I don't mean there were tons of people. I mean, I couldn't make sense of the layout of the roof. There were animal statues, a pond with dauntingly spaced stepping stones, hollow spires, slides, a wide white dome, and towering above it all, a 30-foot tall praying mantis. In the sky, which we were very close to, you know, 10 stories up in the air, the gray clouds glowered at us like they were ready to wash us right off the roof. Like any second, lightning bolts would high-five the massive metal claws of the praying mantis. So, naturally, we climbed on metal things, doing something you shouldn't be able to do on a roof, even in nice weather. Now, my wife decided to stay with the baby. She doesn't do too well with heights. So, me and my four-year-old crawled hand over hand up a tube of strong metal wires or mesh that angled some 50 feet up. And keep in mind, we're 10 stories in the air just standing on the roof. But that metal tube of a bridge went 50 feet up to the green bug god atop it all. The wind was blowing past us through all those wide spaces in the wires. It felt like jet streams trying to push us right off the roof. It was one of those climbs that had a no turning back point and many should I have let the four-year-old onto this thing points. If my creaky bruised knees or her tiny arms gave out any second, we were stuck. There was nowhere to go, nowhere to rest. There was nothing to get us out of this situation. Finally, though, we got to the top. We made our obeisance to Giamantis, or whatever its name was. And then next, we jumped onto a Ferris wheel. That's right. On the roof was an old Ferris wheel of the type you see at carnivals. The ones with no seatbelts and too much sway and the constant threat of slipping through the bottom of the car. A questionable contraption when it's on solid terra firma and a borderline death wish when it's high up on a rooftop, before a storm. We survived it though, uh, it was rough. As I get older, Ferris wheels get more and more terrifying, but we got through it, and then after monkey barring across various other thingamajigs set way too close to the edges of the roof, we jumped on a bus. That bus, the one that was dangling over the edge of the roof. It was a real bus, a real bus, and they had set it so half of it was over empty air. 10 stories of empty air. And those people that I had seen from the parking lot, they were now us. You could literally get into this bus, walk around it, walk to the edge of it, sit in the driver's seat, pull, the, <laughs> drive that wheel like you were actually driving it off a roof, like some action movie scene. It was terrifying and bonkers. You really have to be able to trust engineers when you visit a place like this. And I gotta say, the roof was the least bizarre part of this entire museum. So let me give you some of its history. The whole museum was the brainchild of a single person. And that was Bob Cassily. He was a sculptor, a guy with a vision. 
he took the city's junk and built this massive interactive monument to dangerous whimsy. In fact, he both lived and died by that code because he was crushed in 2011 when his steamroller that he was driving fell down a hill while he was creating a new attraction. This one was called Cementland because of all the pieces of it being made of cement. And he died before Cementland could be finished. But the city museum lives on. So we finally finished with the roof and returned to the ground floor. So I was shaky and sweaty and <laughs> nervous. And my wife was shaky and sweaty and nervous. My kid was having a blast. But we thought that once we got back inside and on the ground floor, that we would be fine. We had gotten through the worst. We had gotten through the roof. But we were wrong. And we were right. It was really cool, but it's also still terrifying. There were giant creatures everywhere. A life-sized white whale opened its mouth into a tunnel into the unknown. A white pterodactyl soared under a ceiling fuzzy with glittery stalactites. Everywhere were tunnels and small entrances to dark places. Places that you could get lost. Places that you could get stuck. Keep in mind, I was a full-sized, over-full-sized adult. And this was probably made for kids, I think. I'm still not sure to this day what the City Museum target audience is. But I, I grabbed the handle of the stroller to watch the newborn, you know, just because I'm that kind of guy. But not really because it was more like I was terrified to jump around those tiny tunnels and holes with the four-year-old. So I let my wife go explore with the four-year-old. I didn't see them again for half an hour. And when I did, it was my wife alone, by herself, sweaty and nervous, asking me from a balcony, a story in the air, if I had seen our daughter. No, she was with you. I have this daughter that's not moving, that's sitting in this stroller. You were the one with the daughter that could move and you've lost her, I guess. No, she had, she had lost her. But in her defense, it's almost impossible not to lose your child inside the city museum. Eventually we did find her only because she decided to let us find her. And then it was my turn to enter the dark labyrinth and lose her. Now, I'm not a helicopter parent. I'm probably the opposite of that. I am careless to a fault with my children. But I was terrified of losing her in this strange place, in this strange city, under these strange circumstances. And it didn't help that following her was near impossible. At one point, I was in the ceiling, in the actual ceiling, crawling through dark, hot plastic tunnels whose circumferences barely beat my own, with no clue where I was about to be deposited. I had no idea where I was going or really where I'd come from either. I was just following this tiny kid through these various avenues in ceilings, walls, and floors. And I was pretty sure not all of it <laughs> was vetted for my weight. The kids are certainly in charge in this place. There are a thousand holes she could and did dive into, ending up in rooms and tunnels that I had to find roundabout and larger avenues to enter. At some point, we ended up in a large cave, like stone surrounding us on all sides and large dragon carvings everywhere. Like we had just been deposited in a different country, underground, in a jungle, in an abandoned city, instead of the middle of St. Louis, Missouri. A few dark holes and strange creatures later, and we were looking up a 10-story shaft of terraces that were actually slides of various heights, including one that fell in a corkscrew through all 10 floors of the building. And I tell you right now, without regret, that I did not do that slide. Part of the reason was because my four-year-old was too small for it. She wasn't allowed to do it. So that meant I had to do it by myself, and I was not doing that by myself. I don't know if I was scared of the slide, or I finally had something that I could be in control of. And that control was, nope, 
not doing a 10-story corkscrew slide. So we'd done a lot of the inside, we'd done the roof, but there was still that industrial junk pile in front of the city museum that we had to conquer. Outside, this massive jungle gym felt 20 times more terrifying than our rooftop ascent. Sure, I was technically closer to the ground, closer being still a few stories in the air, but the arcing wire tunnels like frozen slinkies and tiny platforms and stuck-in-air airplanes and stripped cockpits that you can drop into or walk along the wings of which were riddled with daunting no-turning-back situations. Again, there's too much no-turning-back in the city museum. I will tell you that right now. A few times I actually qualled. I don't use the word qualled lightly either. I don't know if I've ever used the word qualled before, but I qualled. I went into tunnels and just stopped and had to turn around and go back. And remember, these tunnels aren't dark holes. These are wire frameworks that go arcing into the air for stories. And I just like, how am I going to get down from this? And how am I going to get down from this with a four-year-old in tow? So somehow this experience combined both agoraphobia and claustrophobia into one experience. So bravo City Museum for doing what seems like the impossible. So on the one hand, it was one of the proudest days of parenting that I've ever had. I got to hang out with my four-year-old and showed her wonders. On the other hand, it was also my worst day as a parent as I had to constantly, and I'm not proud of this at all, promise her gifts of escalating value to keep her from dashing off or putting me in a precarious situation or just to let me stop and freak out internally for a few minutes before moving on. I was bribing her non-stop. So this was a, a larger road trip we were on, so we weren't in St. Louis killing days of time. So we did have to eventually go probably sooner than we would otherwise have for an attraction of that sort. So we didn't do everything in that 600,000 square foot museum. There's an aquarium in there, a ball pit with oversized balls, live acts, places I'm sure I just didn't find in all the nooks and crannies and secret tunnels, and apparently the fifth floor of this building is apartments. I, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what I've read, and I cannot believe people live in that craziness. But I would love to meet them. But the worst part was leaving. I mean, like I said, we were nervous and terrified, and sitting in a car felt like heaven. But not to my four-year-old. This was like the best day of her life. The closer we got to the exit, the larger my kid's suspicions got until she realized that those four glowing red letters above the door meant we were leaving. She exploded in a wail like I've never heard from her before or since. And it wasn't so much a spoiled tantrum. It wasn't that kind of thing at all. It was desperate grief from the deepest regions of her developing psyche. I want to have fun. That's what she screamed at me repeatedly through tears as I hoisted her over my shoulder and out the door. She instinctively knew in her small brain that fun might never measure up again. And I'm going to always be scarred by that. I ripped her out of the most fun she's ever had. And I think I had to lie to her to do that, to trick her to that exit sign. I had to lie to her. And I might have done irreparable damage to our relationship. Even whatever, six years later, I'm not quite sure that that moment didn't put some growing rift between us that'll get wider and wider until she's an adult and doesn't talk to me for years. That said, the place is bonkers, and everybody should check it out. All right, so let's leave St. Louis, Missouri. Let's head north to a place called the House on the Rock in Wisconsin. Just like the City Museum, House on the Rock is the absolute worst name for this place. It sounds like the name of a house of mere architectural interest, right? Like a Frank Lloyd Wright roof holder. But no. The House on the Rock is a portal to the bizarre and the wondrous at a scale I have never seen. 
in, in many ways, it's like the city museum in that it's really hard, almost impossible to describe, but it is a very different experience in every way. These are both bonkers places, but they also couldn't be more different from each other. But to give kind of a example of how bizarre and wonderful this place is, it was used as a pretty major backdrop in Neil Gaiman's American Gods, both his book and the series based on it. They actually filmed at the House on the Rock because probably really hard to fake the House on the Rock on a set. So they were actually at House on the Rock filming this crazy fantasy uh, God-filled journey. I mean, the House on the Rock does sound like a fictional place. There are room-sized music boxes, a monster as long as the Statue of Liberty is tall, a room that extends into infinity. All of this crammed inside a building that you can't really get a look at from the outside because of where it's situated in nature, on a rock, <laughs> in a forest. You just can't kind of get a whole view of this building. The town in Wisconsin that it is located in is called Spring Green. And honestly, I had no idea what to expect. I had done the research, but that research, much like my descriptions of the House on the Rock so far, just didn't make sense. So outside, from what I could see of the outside, it was your average entrance to your average roadside tourist attraction. But then we went inside, and I spent the next few hours so overwhelmed that I didn't know what I was looking at, or where I was in the building, or the state of Wisconsin, or the planet Earth, or possibly the universe, or what was happening next, or how I was ever going to explain this to any other human being. This is almost not a podcastable topic. I almost need to show you all the photos we took at this place. Let me do it this way then. Let me back up to how the house on the rock was built. Maybe that's an easier path than me trying to describe my experience right away. So the whole place started as just a house on a rock. Does that help? Am I helping? <laughs> this is explaining it better? It was 1945, and a guy named Alex Jordan Jr., of whom not much is known, built a Japanese-style house 450 feet above the ground on Deer Shelter Rock. And then he stuffed it full of arts and artifacts and mechanical wonders. And once it got to a certain saturation point in there, he opened it up to the public. And he did that because he wanted to keep financing his obsessions, these collections, these strange things that he was aggregating and conglomerating and accreting over the course of his life. Things which he played with and puttered with until his death in 1989 at age 75. But the house on the rock doesn't feel like what's left over when a creator dies. Not at all. It feels alive. Like it was born there. Like it had always been there. Like it was supposed to be there. Like you're inside of something that is absolutely oblivious to you. It's worn of rooms doesn't seem to be laid out in any cognizable pattern. There are no windows to orient yourself with. It feels like its own world. The only time I remember seeing the outside was in the infinity room. And the infinity room is this long optical illusion of a room surrounded by glass that looks like it extends forever. But even the reality of the room, that it is a pointed protrusion that sticks out 218 feet without any support directly beneath it, only at the base of it, is boggling. It's a work of crazy architecture. A glass-covered hole in the floor revealed the tops of trees beneath my feet. The tops of trees beneath my feet. If that was the only attraction in the House on the Rock, I'd still go. It was vertiginous and weird and wild. But that was probably normal compared to everything else I saw in the House on the Rock. 
The place is riddled with collections, musical instruments and model airplanes and armor and miniatures and, and cultural artifacts and mechanical devices. At one point, you're surrounded by angels. Then you're in a circus. At another, you're walking through a giant demon's face down a red hallway. Even Jordan's original living spaces of the house are odd, with rocks jutting out of the walls and trees growing up through the floor. Elsewhere in the house is the world's largest indoor carousel, which doesn't sound odd, right? It's a carousel. It's horses on poles that go in circles. Now, that does sound odd, but this one is different. It's in this room that's dark, and that demon face that I talked about walking into its mouth, it's there. And this thing, this carousel, is overwhelming. It is the world's largest indoor carousel, 35 feet tall, 80 feet wide, and weighs over 36 tons. It was built from scratch with some 20,000 lights, 183 chandeliers, and 269 animals, not just horses, animals of all varieties, pulled from carousels across the world. I imagine Jordan standing in the middle of the house like some kind of wizard Noah calling out the four corners and watching the wooden and fiberglass creatures fly, creep, run, and swim through the world to converge on him and take their place skewered on the rotating contraption. My kids are always dragging me to carousels, but this time, this one time here in Wisconsin was the first and only time I have ever felt the magic of these animal wheels firsthand. And then suddenly you're inside a giant music box. A full orchestra of life-size mechanical characters line the room, at the center of which is an elaborate coach led by elephants. Elephants. Not live ones, but elephants. Like, fake ones. Everything moves and the music is deafening and the effect is unlike anything I've ever seen or heard. It feels like you're in the middle of a giant music box. Like I said, full of mechanical automata. Automata. I have apparently never said that word out loud. Then after that, you're suddenly walking down the brick pathways of an entire downtown squeezed into a single room. It's called the Streets of Yesterday. Then after that, you're suddenly face to fin with a monster. This, this was the highlight for me. Not the infinity room, not the giant carousel, not the demon face. All those are great things. But my favorite part of the entire House in the Rock was this giant multi-story toothy whale that's fighting with an octopus. It's basically a giant sculpture of this whale fighting this octopus. And you can walk around it through this walkway that goes up in a corkscrew around the edges of this giant multi-story room. And on the sides of the walls are various model ships and nautical things. But the entire time you're staring at this giant Leviathan fighting this other giant Leviathan. Honestly, that thing deserves its own kind of podcast, just that one sculpture. As I said before, <laughs> podcasting about places like the City Museum and House on the Rock is an unfair exercise to me and to you. Even Neil Gaiman himself admitted to toning the House on the Rock down in his book because it was too unbelievable to write about as it was. And this is a book <laughs> with gods that fight each other. So I think I can guess at how you're feeling about this podcast. It sounds like just pure hyperbole. Like I'm just trying to make... You know, an entire mountain range out of a molehill, but I can't say enough about how strange these two places are. So if you haven't seen them, go to them. You will not regret it one little bit. No hyperbole. All right, as I check my recording software to make sure it was on this entire time, 
that's the podcast. Um, let's see if there's any house business to take care of. If you could, give me some stars. Uh, more stars makes me want to do the podcast more. I've kind of um, tried to do it twice a month. A couple times I failed and only done it once a month. But the more stars you give me, the more encouragement that will be to do more podcasts. Uh, that was a cheesy way to ask for stars. I'm sorry. <laughs> if you want to rate the podcast, please do it. I super, super appreciate it. But that's it. I'll link to photos from both my own personal photos and Lindsay's photos from both the House on the Rock and City Museum in the show notes. Make sure you go there. I'll put addresses, all the usual information you need to go see these places yourself. And again, I don't mind reiterating, you should definitely go see these places. This has been an episode, a very breathless episode of Odd Things I've Seen the podcast.